sermon text reading comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verses 7 to 9, and from Psalm 63, verses 1 to 5. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward from all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. From chapter 6. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This, um, I'm on there. If this is your first Sunday with us, first of all, thank you. Welcome that you're here. Second of all, uh, we've been in this series here during what's called the Lenten season leading up to Easter called Glittering Vices. And for those of you who have been with us before, you know this, that we have been marrying a vice with a virtue along the way, looking at the seven deadly sins. The reason for that is because, as I've been saying all along, that, that we want preaching and teaching to be both hopeful and helpful. And so preaching that just focuses on a vice is not very hopeful, for obvious reasons, right? But preaching that just focuses on what we want to hear, the virtue, it's not very helpful because it's not living in reality. And so good teaching at any church should be both hopeful and helpful, is what we've been saying. And so last week we, we looked at anger. I had someone come up to me this past week and say, it's too bad Will Smith doesn't go to your church. Um, 
right? Yeah. But this week we're looking at gluttony. And as one of my staff members was saying as we were talking about the passage earlier this week, she said, I don't think I've ever heard anyone preach on gluttony. And I thought about it. I was like, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on gluttony before. At least after today, you'll say at least you've heard one in your lifetime. But that's what we're looking at today is gluttony. And a lot of people, when they hear gluttony, they first think, oh, uh, it's the overindulgence in, in drink and in food. And it's not less than that, but it's so much more than that, as we're going to see today. What it's really about is not that. It's about the pursuit of pleasure. And what happens when a good thing, the pursuit of pleasure, becomes our everything and it goes off the rails? What we're looking at is the heart of the, the idea of the pursuit of pleasure, and that is the idea of desire. There's a writer named James Smith who wrote a book called Desiring the Kingdom. And in that book, he suggests that what makes humanity different from any other aspect of creation, any other creature, is desire. That what defines us is our desires. And where our desires go in our lives directs our paths, is what Smith says. And I think he's right. And that's essentially what we're also seeing in these two passages. One was written by David King, who's on the run, fleeing uh, crisis in his kingdom out in a literal wilderness. And the other one is of his son, Solomon, from Ecclesiastes, who wasn't in a wilderness, quite the opposite physically. He had everything, but he was in an existential wilderness, looking for meaning through the pursuit of pleasure. And what we see in these two texts is desire. And what do we do with that as it relates to pleasure in particular? Three things we're going to look at this morning. Number one, we're going to look at a desire that empties us. That's the gluttony. Second, we're going to look at a desire that frees us, that rescues us from the, the idea of being mastered by our stomach, so to speak. And then finally, we're going to look at a desire that actually brings us to a feast. Because what we're going to see is the answer to gluttony is not to go without, but quite the opposite. It's to feast. Oh, Scott, what do you mean by that? Well, let's look at your journey with the first thing here, the desire that empties. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. Ecclesiastes is part of what's called the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. And often one of the devices that was used in, uh, with wisdom literature was a teacher. And uh, so a professor, basically. And probably all of us have had professors that were saying, man, I'll never forget that professor. And the reason why you will never forget them, at least in part, is because of how engaging they were as they taught you. Probably they wasn't like a mind dump into your brain, but instead they, they encourage you to think. And, and, what, uh, and what the teacher, traditionally it's known as the person of Solomon, in light of everything that Solomon or this person does, it probably has to be Solomon because only he had the access to the things of verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2 there. But the teacher is saying, look, I've been down this road. Let me tell you what it was like to go down this road. And I'm going to give you some feedback for your life. That's wisdom literature. That's wisdom teaching. And so here we are in verse 1, and, and he says, Look, I've, I've tried everything under the sun, and it left me found wanting. I'm, I've been through the pursuit of pleasure. I've come up short. It's all vanity, he says. That word that we hear over and over, that common refrain all throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And what I think this is a picture of is a picture of our world. And what I mean by that is, I believe that we live in a culture of excess. Uh, you know, for, for King Solomon, only few people in that culture had access to the things that he talks about in verses 1 through 11. But I, I would say, by and large, for most of us in here, we have that sort of access that he had. And what do I mean by culture of excess? Well, several weeks ago, uh, David, who you just met up here in front, uh, David Endrickin, our executive leader here, 
David preached, and he was talking about his, that he's an aficionado for cars, right? And like, I've never met anyone who knows cars the way that David knows cars. And if you heard his sermon, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, he, it's like as he was describing the Porsche, you could see that he was driving the Porsche through his sermon in front of you. I mean, he was, he was that passionate for, for a car that handles the road well, right? And he's told me some of the stories of being in, had the opportunities to be driving nice cars and so forth, the, to try new things out, rally experience, things like that. And I was thinking, you know, uh, as he was describing cars, he was describing our culture and our access to every imaginable car. Like, he was telling me that every, now, even 30, 40 years ago, uh, not every brand had a sports car. Now everybody has a sports car. Now everyone has an electric version of a sports car. You follow? Like, we have so much opportunity, right? And I, I was thinking, you know, if David lived a century ago, he wouldn't, probably wouldn't be an aficionado of cars, right? It'd be a Model T, and there's one color black, right? So you can see, like, our culture has shifted. Our culture has changed. We have more opportunity. Here's what I want to say. We have more than ever before access to excess. We have, let me say it again, we have more access to excess than ever before. Gluttony is a real thing. Now, it's not like gluttony didn't exist thousands of years ago. It did, but I'm just suggesting that this is something closer to your hearts than perhaps we realize. So the first thing I want to say, what is gluttony? Here's the definition in, in one sense. It is the vice of excess, right? But that's not enough. Here's the second thing, right? And it's this. It's living in the present for the present only. It's living in the present for the present only. The word secular comes from a Latin word, seculum, and it means to be present, to live in the present. And so the, the difference between secular and religious, in that sense, is probably made more obvious now. And so in any religion, right, there's a the sense of the afterlife. And somehow, and every religion looks at it differently, of course, but somehow the afterlife is related to the present. But in a seculum world, in a secular world, there's only this world. And what we see here in verse 10 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 is something about that, where he says, everything under the sun. Now, this is a phrase that Solomon uses 30 different times in the course of his book. And what that phrase means is to live as if this world is all that exists. What happens as a result of that? Well, first of all, it's to live in the present only. And it wasn't just Solomon who understood that. In the New Testament, you have Paul. We're approaching Easter. And one of the more well-known texts uh, is the defense of the resurrection by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And there, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Look, if the resurrection didn't happen in space and time, if Jesus Christ is not who he says he was, if there wasn't an actual physical, historical resurrection, Christians above all other people in the universe are fools. Because we're missing our opportunity, he says. And he quotes... A philosopher, he says, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, if the resurrection didn't take place, live in the present, seculum, right? Secular. And what, what, what he's doing here, what, what Solomon is doing, he says, I've tried everything under the sun. I've tried everything in seculum. And then he goes on four different times in this text, by the way, four different times. He says, I did this for myself. And so part of what it means to be secular, in that sense of the term, part of what that means is to live for yourself. And it makes sense. If this world is all that there is, why wouldn't you? Why would you want to sacrifice knowing that any lack of pleasure, giving up uh, the desire for pleasure, giving up the opportunity for a greater pleasure, how does that possibly serve you because there is no afterlife? 
And so part of what defines Solomon here is he says, I did these things for myself. He says, I built these projects, this, this architecture, these great palatial palaces. I had all these concubines for myself. If you know the story of, of Solomon, he had like 600 plus concubines that man lived for sex. And so Solomon has everything imaginable. Project self, as I like to call it here, right? And he says, I've come up empty, which leads now to the problems that I want to suggest are part of the desire that empties us. Okay, here's the first thing. There's a destructive paradox when we live for pleasure in itself. The more we fill ourselves, the more empty we become. When I was in seminary, I was there twice. Some of you know that story. First time through, I was single. And my roommate was an ex-semi-pro baseball player. He was a big guy. And so on Saturdays, we'd play a lot of different athletics. And, and we'd starve ourselves just so that we could go to CeCe's Pizza for dinner that night. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to CeCe's Pizza. Now, I don't know what it costs because 20 years later, I've been repenting of what I did multiple Saturdays in a row. But uh, for two ninety nine, it was an all-you-can-eat buffet. And so I know Paul says, I must buffet my body. We buffeted our bodies, right? I mean, I, and so we'd go for two ninety nine plus a, a soda drink, made it three ninety nine, and we were dirt poor seminarian single guys. And so we would go, and uh, we would get there. They'd say, welcome to CeCe's. We're like, indeed, welcome. And we would go to town. I mean, I mean, not exactly classic Italian food, but we would go to town on that for hours. And then we would roll out of there a few hours later. And you know that feeling? You know exactly what I'm talking about. You know that feeling when you come out of a place like that and you feel like you have just violated the order of things in the universe with your body. That was, that was us. Like we, have, we have violated the cosmos with our bodies tonight. Uh, a friend of mine says he calls it the golden corral effect. And I think that's probably true, right? And that's just food and drink as an example here. But, it, but, I mean, that sense of emptiness, those empty calories, literally. And we were so full, and yet we were so empty at the same time. Solomon says, I've come up short. And he says this in actually chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. There's the paradox. I'm full and yet I'm not satisfied. And it leads to sickness. Listen to what Proverbs 25, 16 says. If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit it. In other words, is it possible to have too much of a good thing? And what uh, the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, as well as the writer of the proverb here, what they're saying is, yes, it's possible to have too much of a good thing. I've been saying a lot about food and drink because that's what we commonly think of. But as I suggested in the introduction, it's a lot, about a lot more than food and drink. I think it's possible. I certainly have experienced this. I think it's possible you can go on a vacation and have too much of a good thing. Have you ever been on a vacation where you're like, you, you've been crushing it in the marketplace? You, you've been working so hard and you're like, I'm going to live it up when I get to the beach. I'm going to live it up when I get to that city. And it's like a hedonistic pleasure dome for a few days, that sort of thing like that. And you come to the end of it and you're saying, man, what happened to me? Or, or, or maybe you have another. It's a family vacation after all. So it's not going to hedonism down in Jamaica or something like that. But instead, like you have, like you've just enjoyed yourself and yet you come to the end of it and you feel like, I just feel empty. 
And yet a vacation, the whole point of a vacation is that you would rest, that you would be satisfied, that you would be fulfilled. And I can tell you on more than one occasion, I've come home not feeling that way. Why? Because it's possible to have too much of a good thing or to approach it in a manner in which the vacation wasn't set up for properly. And I think it leads to the last thing here. That's the problem with the emptiness, the gluttony here, and it leads to a frustration of meaning within our lives. A frustration of meaning. What do I mean by that? In verse 11, in chapter 2, it's also there in verse 9 of chapter 6. Did you notice that phrase, striving after the wind? Some translations say, a chasing after the wind. Now, if you go to the beach, if you go uh, to a lakeside, you're sitting on the dock of the bay, right? And you feel that breeze on you. It feels good, doesn't it? But, but who could ever try channeling that or containing the wind? It's impossible. And so this picture that Solomon gives us is someone who enjoys something and then tries to contain it. Let me tell you something. Incredibly important part here in the wisdom literature of what Solomon is saying. If you hear nothing else, please hear this. If the goal of your life is the pursuit of pleasure, you never arrive. Because the only way to get to pleasure is indirect. Let me say that again. If joy is what you have to have, you never get joy. The only way you get joy, the only way you get happiness is indirectly. We're going to see that here in just a second in David's passage. But I want to initially say here that part of the frustration of our lives is we're saying, man, I have to have pleasure. I have to have comfort in my life. I have to have more of what I have. I need to have a better standard of living, those sorts of things. What often happens is we go after those things and we say to ourselves, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? I feel empty again. This is the heart of gluttony. And I think that in part of the reason why we do this is because of another thing. It's part of our frustration. And it's something that I think especially we've been feeling in the last two and a half years. And that is to use pleasure as a way to cover pain. This has been an incredibly difficult season for the last two and a half years. I know we're all excited about traveling again. But there's been trauma for the last two and a half years. A lot of it. A lot of anger in our culture. A lot of conflict. A lot of sickness, physical and emotional and otherwise. A lot of mental health issues for a lot of us. You know, I was reading a story, perhaps you saw it as well, that suggested that in the last two years, alcohol-related deaths were up 25% year-to-year. That is unprecedented. It's never happened year-to-year. And for most of us in here, most majority of 25 to 44, I'm not in that category anymore, but for most of you, 25 to 44, that number was up 40% since the beginning of the pandemic. In fact, more people died of alcohol-related deaths under the age of 65 than from COVID. That is stunning. Why? Because of this desire to cover. I have a, I'm in a cohort of pastors, senior leaders around the country. We get together periodically, and one of them was sharing with me. He says, Scott, I want to share something with you. He says, um, every day when I come home from the church, at 5 o'clock, I reach for a drink. And this guy grew up in what he self-described fundamentalist home. They never touched alcohol. They never did anything, finally said. But they, they, didn't, they didn't have any alcohol. And, and now every day, every day during the pandemic, he was getting up and re, or at 5 o'clock, coming home and reaching for a drink. One of his friends said, are you reaching or are you receiving? He says, in receiving, it's, it's part of a social gathering 
where you're invited to participate in something. He says, it's different from drinking by yourself. It's the reaching. I've got to have this. And I think it was such a picture from a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, who, um, you know, and I know something about the stress of the pastor, especially the last two and a half years. And so I, I know that, I know the pressure points. And I know that you know the pressure points as well in your own life, in your own story. And you know that the, the, the stats, my friend as well, these things are real. And part of it is because we are, we're so desirous to cover pain with pleasure. But pleasure is a poor covering for pain. Pain is, is like that spring that bubbles to the surface. It will not go away, you see. And so it's this distortion. John Wesley, this, uh, when he was a little boy, he asked his mother, Susanna, he says, what is sin? I want you to hear what she said in response to her son. He wrote it down. Whatever weakens your reasoning, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes away your relish for spiritual things. In short, if anything increases the authority and the power of the flesh over the spirit, that to you becomes sin, however good it is in itself. That is words of wisdom from a mother. Notice what she said there. She didn't say bad things. No. She said good things like alcohol, food, drink, of course, sex. All these things in other words, are good things from God. But if we distort them in the wrong way, use them poorly, it leads to disaster. Frederick Beekner in a work called Wishful Thinking said this. He said, a glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. And so if at some level of hearing this this morning, you say, that sounds at least a little bit like me. What do we need? At least the second thing we need. We need freedom. God made us for freedom. So how are we rescued? How do we become free? I think it's several things, but listen to what David says in verses 1 through 2 of Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my... God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Now remember what I said. David is not in the sanctuary. David is not anywhere near Jerusalem. David is in crisis as a king being humiliated by Absalom, his son, who's threatening to take the throne. And so David is on the run. He's in the wilderness. And out there in the wilderness, what is he thinking about? The sanctuary. And what is he thinking about within the sanctuary? Intimacy with God. He he describes here, he says, I'm thirsting for you. I'm hungering for you. Which I think gives us the first picture of how it is that we deal with gluttony. We first detach ourselves from an old thing. We detach ourselves from an old thing. The old thing being what we pursue for within gluttony. What do I mean by that? Well, for David, David in that literal wilderness there, he didn't have access to much, did he? And out there in the wilderness, he finds himself saying, how do I respond to the emptiness? And what does he yearn for? Does it yearn that somehow his pain will be dealt with there in the wilderness in and of himself with his own actions? No, instead he says, I look to you, Father. I want to be back in intimacy. I want to be back in the sanctuary. I want to be back in the temple with you. I thirst for you. I hunger for you in a dry and weary land. Slake my thirst. He sees that he has a spiritual need more than anything else. I want you to see that when we go to gluttony, it is always evidence of a spiritual need that's left unfulfilled, as Bickner said. We're raiding the icebox. We're going at it in the wrong way. And I want to say for all of us, not just the last two and a half years, all of us have been in wildernesses. And some of you are there right now, and you can feel that pressure point. And saying, if I just had a vacation, 
If I, if I, if I just had a, a better house, if, if I just had more of this, again, access to the excess, and I want to suggest, suggest to you that, again, we're raiding the wrong icebox here. And so how do we do that? How do we seek to detach? And, and think about what Lent is. Lent is this time, historically, in the church, ancient and forward, of testing. And what Lent is, traditionally, especially in the Catholic tradition, was to give something up. Now, it can be taken in a legalistic way. We can just simply do it to do it, and that's not right. And certainly in the Protestant tradition, uh, many have now taken this upon themselves as part of their own spiritual practices. But what traditionally Lent is about is saying, can I give this up and be okay? In fact, by giving this up, can I draw closer to the heart of God? In my wilderness, my, in this case, voluntarily chosen wilderness, for David it wasn't, but for us, can we test something? And if in testing that thing, we say, there's no way I can give this up. There's no way I can go without alcohol. I need that drink at 5 o'clock. Uh, there's no way I can give up this, this dessert or this food. Like, then that means that that good creative thing has become inordinate in your life. It's become ultimate. It's become your everything. And so part of what I think this picture of the wilderness gives us is this picture of holy detachment, a healthy detachment. Richard Foster, a Christian writer, simply says this, Fasting reveals the things that control us. Fasting reveals those things that that we have to have, in other words. But the second thing here that's related, of course, it's really two sides of the same coin, is, is that hunger and the thirst for the new attachment. And again, for David, it's in the person of God, knowing him, and saying, I want to get back to that intimacy. If you struggle with gluttony, and I include myself in this, to any stretch, any length, no matter whether it's food and drink or something else, I promise you this much, it is a reflection of a lack of intimacy with God. There's this deep abiding longing, this desire that only God can slake, that only he can fulfill. Our hearts are restless, Augustine said, until we rest in thee. I think he's right. But as a Christian, we say, but I'm a Christian. Why is it that I struggle so much with that? I think part of the answer for us is in the person of Jesus Christ. What is it that we need more than anything else? We don't need a generic God. We need a God that we know intimately. And as Christians, how do we know God intimately? Through Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Earlier we read the passage from Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, if you don't know that passage, Jesus was beginning his ministry. In fact, this is how his public ministry three and a half years has kicked off. Jesus is, is out there in the wilderness. And the evil one comes to him and three different times tempts him with things that he knew that Jesus wanted. No, perhaps not, but at least certainly could have, including bread. Now, he's hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days, and it says that he was hungry. And so the evil one, he says, you know what? You see all these hot baking stones turn into hot baking bread. And not just one loaf. Did you know it was in the plural there? Excess. Cover the wilderness. Cover the desert floor with hot breaking bread. And don't you know that, that this is a real temptation? Don't you know that Jesus, in smelling that bread in his, in his nostrils, figuratively speaking, that like he could, as, as the devil was saying that, right, he could smell the bread. But he forsook the bread. Why? Why did he go to the wilderness? Why did he forsake the things? Why did he deny himself what he did? And the answer is the other wilderness. Say, so what do you mean by that, Scott? At the very end of his ministry. Hebrews 13, 12, it says this. 
So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Where was Jesus crucified? Golgotha, the place of the skull. Where was the place of the skull? Outside the city gates in the wilderness. And what did Jesus say on the cross? Some of his last words, I thirst. How remarkable is that, that the bread of life forsook the bread in the desert? How remarkable is it that the living water forsook the water on the cross? Why did he do that? It also says in Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Don't you say? The ultimate rescue, the ultimate freedom from gluttony for any of the deadly sins from any sin in our life is Jesus Christ. And seeing that he gave up, he thirsted, he hungered so that you wouldn't have to. And listen to what it says in the the back half of Psalm 63, the section at least that we're looking at, verses 3 through 5. Because your steadfast love, that's the faithfulness of God, is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. And that sets us up here to see that Jesus doesn't want to just free you, okay, to rescue from sin. No, no, no. He's not done. He wants you to feast. Okay, I want you to hear that. I was reading a book this past week on, on, on gluttony. And the emphasis was on fasting as the response. But I want you to know that I don't believe it's the full picture here. I believe that Jesus says, no, no, I want you to feast because we're made for feasting. In fact, when I come back from my sabbatical in the fall, I'll be doing a whole series on feasting. And one of the things I've learned already is that there's a six to one ratio of fast, excuse me, feasting to fasting in the scriptures. Jesus is biased towards feasting is the point here. And I want you to see this picture in verse 5 there, Psalm 63, he says, joyful lips. Remember what I said earlier about if you go after joy directly, you never get it. But if you go about it indirectly, you always get it. How? By feasting on him. Don't you see? That's what David is saying out in the wilderness. As I feast on you, you're better than life itself. You're the best feast imaginable. I get joy. So where is the joy for the Christian? Is in directly going after the Father through Jesus. And through that, we get the joy of life. And so what does that lead to? It leads to right pleasure. So you may be asking after all of this, then how do I know if a pleasure is good for me or not? It sounds like, man, it sounds like alcohol. It sounds like sex. All these things can be stumbling blocks for me. So how do I know that pleasure is a good thing for me as a Christian if I want to go after God? Here's the answer. Ready for it? It's this, a right pleasure is always one that leads you towards the mission of God. And so in other words, it's not about, should I never have alcohol, right? Or, you know, whatever it might be, whatever the pleasure might be. The answer is this, it's how do you use that pleasure and does it lead you towards the heart of God? I want to show you a picture now of what that looks like. It's a picture from our women's retreat from this past weekend. Do we have that picture? There we go. Okay, that is end away, Right? Uh, we have a lot of you have returned. By the way, it sounds so much better this week than last week. There was a bunch of men here singing. Um, thank you, Wynn, for returning here. But this is a picture of the charcuterie board of charcuterie boards. I've never seen something like this. Endoway, thank you, Endoway. Endoway spent two hours um, artistically, almost, I want to say, creating a work of art here for food. Now, that is a spread of spreads, of biblical proportions. And I want you to know... The Father's saying when Indue made that board. Why? 
because of the mission of God. What was the whole point of that board? The whole point of, of Kirsten and Indoy and the other team leaders uh, putting that together was to create a welcome of hospitality for the women coming to the women's retreat. Don't you see, it's not about, oh, was the quality of that food? Oh, that's fat and rich. I don't know about that. No, 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 no. It's what is the, the drive? What is the mission of the food and drink? What is the mission of the vacation? What is the mission of your sexuality? Don't you see, that's what matters. God has made us to feast, friends. And I pray that we will be a feasting culture. I pray that we will be a feasting church. But all the the feasting that we do, rather than being towards ourselves, project self-gluttony, instead will be a feasting for the nations. A feasting for the kingdom of God. You want to be part of a kingdom like that? I sure do. You want to be part of a church like that? You better believe I want to be part of that. And so my hope and my prayer is that City Church will be known as a feasting church. Right? Not as a gluttonous. Remember, it was interesting. Jesus actually was accused of being a glutton by the Pharisees. But if you look at what he was doing there, he was feasting. And there's a difference. And so may we be more like Jesus. May we be accused sometimes of being gluttons when the reality, no, we're on mission for the kingdom. And how different that is. But not pursuing directly after pleasure, but receiving a greater pleasure by the direct pursuit of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the feast. Thank you that in Jesus we have the feast. We have the better bread. We have the better drink. We have the bread that will not end. We have the spring of living water that never comes to an end. We have all the joy. We have all the pleasure that will ever be made for and then some. We have it all because of you, Christ Jesus. We thank you that you were the feast. And may we imbibe. May we take the feast. May we receive the feast. And may it drive us and draw, draw us towards a greater community of faith. May it draw us in towards each other to celebrate and rejoice what it means to have faith in you, Jesus Christ. And so may we not, never be gluttons. May we, may we refrain from a pleasure that is for ourselves, that is unjust. But instead, may we pursue justice in the city through the generosity of the table. May we pursue the kingdom through the generosity of the king. We pray this in your name. Amen.